0: This morning as we shift our attention to the study of God's Word, we find ourselves in another difficult time. It seems like we, we hit those a lot, rough patches, difficult times in, uh, in the life of this new nation of Israel. We're studying the life of David, the second king of Israel, arguably the greatest king in the history of Israel. And uh, we learned about David last week, that he was a man after God's own heart. This is the man that slayed the giant Goliath. This is the man who patiently waited 22 years after being anointed king, to be inaugurated king. This is the man whose journal has provided inspiration to generations, pinning words in the Psalms uh, like these on the screen. This is Psalm 45 throughout, 5 through 8. He says, many Lord, my God, are the wonders that you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you or I to speak and tell of your deeds. They would be too many to declare sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. You see, if David's life were a play, act one of that play is just inspiring. Unfortunately, there is a second act. And act two takes a tragic turn. Join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to study this difficult time in the life of King David. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your one and only son to come and to live the life that we could to die in our place on the cross. Jesus, we are so grateful to you. Holy Spirit, we want to come and ask you right now to come and invade this space and this place and to draw us unto yourself. You are the teacher of this church. We step back now. We recognize that. We ask you to come and fill this pulpit and to teach your church and to lead her in the way that she ought to go. Exalt Jesus. Lift him up. And Jesus, as you're lifted up, please draw us to yourself. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. A little differently this morning, we're just going to walk through what I call Act 2 of David's life. And Act 2 of David's life is really broken up into five tragic scenes. And the scenes look like this. Scene 1 is his, the act of sin, great act of adultery. And scene 2 begins with David trying to cover up that act of adultery, his attempt to cover up. and Scene 3, he is accosted by the prophet of the na- uh, nation, Nathan. And uh, he's confronted about his sin. In scene four, he finally admits his guilt. And then in scene five, uh, we have the assurance of forgiveness that is extended to him from God. And so we're just going to walk through the story together um, this morning. And here is how scene one of the second act of David's story begins. I'm going to be reading from our, 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 our book here, the story. I'm on page 161. If you don't have your copy, uh, if you're in your Bibles, I'm in Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and the word of God reads, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem." One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Wow. In the time when kings go off to war, it says David remained in Jerusalem. It's probably a message in there about the dangers of idleness. <laughs> But we have to press on this morning. David, King David, the man after God's own heart, stays home instead of going to war. The one who is known as the great warrior of Israel, who has, has defeated the giants, the one who, whose songs were saying about his great victories, he stays home instead of going to war. And he walks about the roof of his palace one evening and he sees quite a scene. Beautiful Bathsheba is bathing below. And David takes more than just a look. He sees her and he stares. Instead of turning away, he lingers, he looks longer, he begins to lust after her, possibly even imagining himself lying with her. And of course, it's not long before he is. He sends someone to find out who she is and the news comes back that, well, that's Bathsheba. Uriah's wife. Now that's significant, friends, if you don't know the story, because Uriah was one of a certain group of soldiers that loved David unendingly. They gave their lives to protect him. He was one of David's mighty men. David's mighty men were the group of men that surrounded David and protected him when Saul was still king and Saul was trying to hunt him down and kill him. It was David's mighty men that always stuck by his side. But that doesn't seem to matter to David at this point, the faithfulness of Uriah. He has become infatuated and so he calls for Bathsheba. She must no doubt be highly flattered at the attention she accepts the invitation comes to the palace where David sleeps with her and impregnates her. It is a terrible act of adultery. And that act of adultery should raise up a question within us, right? I mean, after all, this is David. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the slayer of giants. This is the guy. This is the hero. How should be the question we ask. How can this happen? How can a man after God's own heart fall so mightily? That really brings us to our first lesson here. We get it from scene one. And lesson one this morning is this, my friends, that even the best people are capable of the worst deeds. Even the best of us are capable of the worst, my friends. You need to write it down. Even the best of people are capable of the worst of deeds. Timothy Keller says, Every one of our hearts is filled with the seeds, with the potential for great evil. That's why Jeremiah the prophet pens this in Jeremiah 17.9. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Friends, if you ever get to that point in life that you begin to proclaim, It's not me. It'll never happen. I want you to know you're on dangerous ground because what the story of God shows us is that all of the good men seem to fall. Adam and Eve had everything that they could ever want or need and they blew it. Cain had a brother that loved him and loved the Lord and he murdered him. Abraham lied and Sarah ends up in the palace of another king. Jacob steals his brother's blessing. Moses murders a man and he doesn't even get to finish the job and enter the promised land. All of the good guys of the Bible are inerrantly bad is what scripture tells us. That really tells us two huge things one it teaches us our propensity towards sin sinful at birth we are sinful the second thing it teaches us is god's propensity to towards grace we are sinful but god is gracious and god will use sinful men and women throughout the remainder of this story to bring about his purposes that's where we find our hope We serve a God so good, so holy, so just, so right, that he can use sinful people for good. For good. Even the best of people is capable of doing the worst. Scene two, the cover-up begins. This is where things get ugly. (laughs) David finds out that Bathsheba is present and uh, is pregnant, and and he immediately kind of goes into damage control mode. What can I do? He doesn't want to get found out. He doesn't want to get caught. So he comes up with a great scheme. Well, I'm just going to call Uriah home. Uh, uh, Under the fallacy that I just kind of want to know how the battle is going. So Uriah, come home. Tell me, how is everyone? Now his goal is that when Uriah comes home, having been away from his wife, having been away from his house for a long time, he imagines naturally he's going to go and sleep with his wife for crying out loud. And and if he does, then he can go back to the the battlefield in a few days. And when he returns home from war, he'll be none the wiser that the child is not his. He may even thank David for the opportunity to come home and, and sire this young lad. It's a devious plan. Only one problem, Uriah is so faithful to the cause He's so faithful to his brothers at arm and the fact that the ark of God is there on the battlefield. He refuses to sleep in his own bed while others are sleeping in the dangers of war. So David says, well, come to the palace and he gets him drunk. He thinks, well, when he's drunk, surely he'll go home and sleep with his wife. And yet he still doesn't. And that's when David says, listen, Uriah, I've got something I need you to take to Joab. He writes down and he seals this document. He sends it to Joab. And what he, what he really sends back are his own death orders. So, Joab, David writes, Joab, I want you to put Uriah up in the front and then I want you to withdraw from where he is. And Uriah's Uriah is going to die because of, of the letter that David writes. Okay? Lesson number two. Lesson number two, covering up our sin often compounds the consequence. If if there were ever ever a place that I could encourage you as a Christian to hit the pause button, it's it's this, when you fail, hit the pause button. Your natural human heart desire, because you're a sinner from birth, is going to be to try to cover up your failure. I need you to hear this. Every attempt it covers up, open, covering up your sin, opens you up to greater consequence, okay? And that's what we see here in, in the life of David. One sinful action leads to another, and another, and another, and another. And by the time he is done, David has broken half of the Ten Commandments. That is the danger of trying to hide our sin. So I'm going to say to you, I, I know that's hard, right? Because we don't like to admit that we are failures, Friends, that is the sin of pride getting in your way. And that one sin will cause you to sin innumerable times in your life. If you can get to the point instead that you admit, man, I am a failure, a fraud, and a phony. And I fall as much as anyone else. And when you fall, you could just go before the Lord and say, Lord, I have fallen. You could go before your wife or your husband or, or, or your coworkers and say, I, I, I've, I've made a mistake. Man, your life will be so much better for it. Your life will be so much better for it. The danger of trying to cover our sin is that we often sin more. Scene three. David has tried to cover his tracks. Now Uriah has died. By the way, here's part two of the scheme. He knows that if he can kill Uriah early enough, he can take Bathsheba to be his own wife. If he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife in the right amount of time, when the baby is born, no one will be the wiser. David is still trying to cover his tracks. I just need you to see it. So scene three, David thinks he's gotten away with it. And, and, and God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. Now, it's, I want you to imagine how difficult it... Listen, it's never easy being a prophet, by the way. I just want to tell you, it's not an easy task. And, and, and if you imagine, this is Nathan's job is now to go before the king. So I want to set the setting historically for you because many of us don't understand why this is happening. You see, at this time, there are no longer judges. David is the acting ruler. He's kind of the acting judge. He's the one that will, will, will take care of civil disputes. People will come before the king and say, King, um, this guy is mistreating me. He's not being right to me. And so Nathan comes before and basically lays out a parable of judgment. He says, listen, there was once this poor man that had nothing but this ewe lamb and he loved it with all of his heart. He even slept with it. It was his pet. It was, and then there was a, a, a traveler that came along, right? And, and, and he needed a place to stay and he needed something to eat. And there was a rich man that had many lambs. He, he, he had, he had all kinds of things that he could feed this traveler. But the rich man, instead of giving up one of his possessions, stole the ewe lamb from, from, from the poor man and he slaughtered it, and he gave the traveler something to eat. And this parable incensed David. David's now wearing his judgment hat, right? He's not just king, now he's judge. And and as judge, he says, well, that's terrible. He's incensed. I can't believe that anyone would do anything like that. He said, you know, that man's got to pay back four times what he stole. Now, that's Mosaic law. That's the law for stealing property. Four times. But then David, incensed with anger, goes way above Mosaic law. He says, in fact, he deserves to die. Okay? Now, listen, that's not not in the code for stealing something. You don't get to kill somebody for that. And that's when Nathan says, well, because David says, "Who, who would do such a thing? What kind of man is this? And Nathan replies, you are that man. You are that man. So, the question before is why does Nathan take such an approach? Why doesn't he just come out and say, King David, God's spoken, you're a sinner? Why does instead he tell this story? I want to tell you why. Here's the third point, okay? Third lesson. Ready? A loving rebuke's aim is always repentance, okay? A loving rebuke's aim is always repentance. Nathan could have just confronted David with the truth. He could have just spoken and said, You are a sinner. You're an adulterer, David. You're a murderer, right? You're a liar. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because his goal isn't to condemn David. His goal is to bring David to repentance. And and see, we have a tendency towards condemnation, my friends, right? That's what we do. We like to condemn people. That is our stuff. Guys, you're horrible, Come on, you're better than this. You're you're a liar. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. That's how we we approach people, just kind of condemning them. The problem is that Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn the world. It's John 3 17. That's the one we didn't study. And so, if we're going to be like Christ, our goal listen, read it. What happens when one sinner repents? Do you know what happens in heaven? In the presence of God, there's a party. When one sinner repents, the scripture says. Therefore, the goal of our lives as ministers of reconciliation is to help people reconcile with God, not to push them further away or to make them feel lesser. This is a loving rebuke by Nathan, and this is where we as Christians need to take careful notes. Our calling in life is not to diminish our brother or sister's value before God. It is to lovingly point out their sin in hopes that they would repent. That is always the goal of a Christian rebuke. That's the father's heart. Repentance, not condemnation. Scene four, David's response, his admission of guilt. Look at David's response to Nathan's word. uh, Nathan's word here on the screen. 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Right? I've done it. I've sinned against the Lord. No excuses. He doesn't try to defend his actions like Saul did. David knows his actions are indefensible. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He brings us lesson four. Okay? Almost done. Here we go. Lesson four. All sin is first and foremost against God. All sin is first and foremost against God. Um, I want to read to you very quickly Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 was penned after this instance of sin on David's part. He writes this, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Remember all that he has done. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He cannot forget what he has done. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He goes on and says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Can, can, now listen, this is a great, I wish I could read the whole thing. He gets down to verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's a, it's a great psalm. But I want you to look at verse 4 for a second. How can David say this? against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Really David, what about Uriah? You just sinned against God. What about Uriah? Cuz you stole his wife and you killed him. What about Bathsheba? You sinned against her too when you called her to the palace and slept with her. You ruined her marriage. Right? What about Bathsheba? David, what about the other innocent man in the army? Because you know when Joab pulled the troops back, that Uriah wasn't the only one that God killed, right? What about the nation as a whole that deserves a better leader than this, David? Are you telling me, honestly, you've only sinned against God? Of course not. It's not the point. What David is saying is this, guys. All sin is first and foremost against God. That's how it was in the garden? Right? What was sin? It was rebellion against God. It was a rebellion against God's word. It was a rebellion against God's ways. And that's what David sees clearly. First and foremost, I have rebelled against the ways of God, against the word of God. I have not been the man of God that everyone thinks that I am, that I have professed to be. God, first and foremost, I have sinned against you. No doubt David makes penance with these other people. That's the kind of man he is. But first and foremost, David knew exactly where he had to start. Same should be said of us. Scene five, final scene for our purposes today. I want you to look at Nathan's immediate response to David's confession. Verse 13, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. The Lord has taken away your sin. He's the only one that can do that, by the way. And, and, and like this event cost David his son, providing forgiveness for David and for us is going to cost God his son. And then, the rest of the story, we learn of the tragic consequences of this event. It's interesting, isn't it? David is completely forgiven. He's purified of all unrighteousness before God. Yet the rest of his life, he faces tragic consequences for the sin. Forgiveness has happened. Consequences remain. That's our last point. I want you to see this. God forgives, but there are still consequences. God forgives... But there are still consequences. The Lord forgives David's sin. He will not die of it. But he will face great difficulty for the rest of his life. His sin is completely forgiven. It is purified. He's been purified of all unrighteous. That's the promise of 1 John 1, nine. But he still has to deal with the consequences of his actions. You know, a lot of people don't understand this point. They ask God for forgiveness. God forgives them. That's God's promise. But life is still hard after their sin. And so they think God hasn't forgiven them. And it makes life worse because now thinking God hasn't forgiven them, their hearts, they're no longer seeking God. They're no longer coming to the throne. They're no longer kneeling before the Lord and saying, God, I need you, I want you, I need you. Because they feel like God is not forgiving them. Okay? Listen, this is huge. Just because consequences in your life remain doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven you. Just because you're dealing with the aftermath of your decisions doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and that He's not for you, okay? God can be for you, and because He's for you, still allow you to sit under the weight of the consequences of your sin because that's actually better for you. It'll help you not do it again. Do you understand? He's a loving Father, and He wants to discipline you and, and lead you into passive righteousness. That's His goal for your life. And so we've got to get this point. God forgives, but we often still face the consequences. So this is, uh, in my mind, how to pack this up. I knew with communion and this story and and having five points, this was not going to work well. Okay, it never fails. We have communion. I know I've got about fifteen minutes, and the Lord gives me a forty-five minute message. So, uh, so taking the story home. If you'll turn to the back, I've already given you all your homework. It's right there. I'm going to fly through them very quickly. Okay. So, so how how to unpack this and take it home? Um, number one, uh, this text challenges us. We really need to know what. What we're capable of. We need to know what we're capable of, friends. Our, our, our hearts are deceitful and beyond cure. Do not ever say, I'll never. The man that says, I'll never cheat on my wife is the one that allows his defenses down. And, 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 and at work, he goes out with other coworkers by themselves. And before you know it, something happens that he said would never happen because he doesn't have any defense mechanism built up. You can't say, I'll never You can't say, I'll never, I'll never do this, I'll never do that. No, you are capable of the greatest and gravest sin there is in the book, my friends. You are. I am. We have to know that, okay? Okay, number two, kill sin, don't let, uh, don't try to cover it up. Kill sin, don't try to cover it up. John, uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Listen, covering it up leads to such worse consequences. When we sin, we need to be open, willing to confess it before God and before others all right? It's going to be a lot better than trying to cover up your sin. It'll just lead to worse consequences if you try to cover it up. Number three, be a Nathan and get a Nathan in your life. No more condemnation. The goal is not to tear down our brothers. The goal is always to lead our brothers and sisters to repentance. So to be a Nathan, I have to lovingly rebuke people, not just rebuke people. Christians, we're listening, right? Loving rebuke is different. The, the, the intent of loving rebuke is repentance. So you need to be that person in somebody else's life, but you also need to get those people in your life. If you do not have anyone in your life that will lovingly come to you and point out your sin, you have a problem. You have a problem. So you need to invite them in. And to invite them in, by the way, uh, by the way, we don't lovingly rebuke people through social media. Okay? I'm just going to say that. That's not, that's not how... Loving rebuke is always done one-on-one in private. Okay, it's it's not done via social methods. You know, don't don't tweet at somebody. Oh, man, you really no, that's not how it works. Okay, but to invite a Nathan into your life, you've got to give them some permissions. Hey, I love you, my brother. I I want you to I want you to have access to my life. If you ever see anything in me that you feel like is not right, would you please just pull me aside and speak truth into my life? Okay, all right. So you need to be a Nathan and you need to get a Nathan for be quick to admit your sin to God. Just be quick. Just be quick. When you fail, listen, stop. stop. Oh, my gosh. Like we, we, tr- we, we act like God is a two-year-old, that he can't see. You know how adults are with little kids? Like, we're eating stuff. You can't have another cookie. No, you can't have ice cream. It's midnight. They go to bed, and we're like, eating out of the tub. We act like God is that way. God sees Everything. From his throne, he sees everything. So why have why you worked so hard to build up your life and, and to have special containment units that God can't see? Oh, it's it's covered in lead. God can't see through that. Come on. God sees everything. So stop trying to hide. Life will be so much easier. Just confess, Lord, I blew it. Woo, I blew it. Man, that person drove me crazy. I went off on them, Lord. It is not right. It's not bragging to God about sin. It's just going, wow, God, I need help. I need mercy. Help me. Oh, dang, I'm a sinner. Then I usually go back. I am so sorry. I am more sinful than you are. I cannot believe I yelled at you like that. Please forgive me, right? Got to confess that sin. Okay, last. Last, pack this up. Take it home. Understand the cost of forgiveness you're facing consequences of your sin, it's easy to get angry with God about it. I know a lot of people sitting in that right now. They're angry with God because they're dealing with the consequences of their sin. I've got family members in this. I've got one that he is angry with God because his marriage ended in a divorce, which it started uh, in an act of adultery. Ended in a divorce. He's mad at God as can be. He's in a cycle of life for the next several years. He's got to pay child support, got to do all kinds of things. He's angry with God. It's not God's fault, buddy. God has forgiven you, but you are dealing with the consequences. It doesn't mean that God hates you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for your life. It doesn't mean that God is not still redeeming the mistake that you made. But dealing with the consequences, that does not mean that God hasn't forgiven you, okay? So we got to understand the cost. When we ask God for forgiveness, what we're saying is, Lord, would you cover me with the spilt blood of your one and only son? And when God says, my child, you're forgiven, he's saying, my son was sacrificed for your sake. So your record in heaven has been blotted out so you can have access to me and eternal life. That's the cost. So let's not complain about the little bit left over that we have to deal with when God has done the much higher, holier act that we needed. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. You're good. Your word endures forever. I pray that it changes our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, work in us this week in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.